This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to the second series, the second coming, the second future, the second wave of John Richardson and the Future Knots. We are back slightly later than we said we would be, but isn't that the way of things? It's me, John Richardson, and I'm joined by the Future Knots. Welcome back, Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Hello. It's good to be with you again. So in many ways, uh, things are exactly as they were. The UK is in full lockdown. The uh, coronavirus is the topic of on every news bulletin, but in many ways, things have changed a lot. There's talk now of a 90% successful vaccine in the offing. The leadership of the free world, or so they call it, has changed hands. Mark and Ed, do you feel like we're sort of where we were when we left Series 1 of the podcast, or has the the change affected your outlook on life and specifically your work? Uh, (laughs) uh, Yes and no. Um, certainly the change of leadership in America will make certain aspects of my job considerably easier in that, you know, certain American departments and government departments will be much more amenable to doing things in partnership than they were previously. I think the world has changed a bit on the surface, but the underlying systemic problems that we talk about, I mean, if you look at the American election, for instance, it doesn't matter what side you're on, um, it's still basically you know, a battle between two old political parties with their investment in a system that they're not prepared to change. I mean, the American electoral system, as we all know, is, is, is vastly undemocratic. The last seven out of eight elections, the popular vote has been won by the Democrats, for instance, but, but the electoral college system is, is clearly archaic and the way they vote is clearly archaic. And of course, of course, democracy doesn't work in the way it should in the 21st century because it's still using these old systems. Of course, when democracy doesn't work very well or very efficiently, it becomes a lot easier to undermine it as Trump you know, has been doing. So, so in some ways, things have changed, yes, because we have new leadership, but really the fundamental problem, which is you know, the democratic systems as well with all the other systems we talked about in Series 1, are no longer fit for purpose and we have to find a way through that, which is good because otherwise we wouldn't really have a Series 2. So, so yes and no. How about that for hedging your bets? That brings us to a huge thank you to everybody who discovered this podcast uh, since we ended the first series over the last few months. Their emails have continued to come in, people listening to uh, the whole series while we were away and firing questions and thanks in throughout the break. It's been 
very generous, very kind. Thank you for that. Has, uh, has there been any emails that have uh, caught your eye? What I really liked is uh, people have, have kind of, you know, generally changed things they're doing. And we've had stacks of emails from people saying that, but one, one caught my eye from Gareth Roberts, who was doing home improvements. And he said, it will now take something drastic to stop me cranking up the insulation, getting rid of the gas spoiler and going fully electric. And I have you guys to thank for that, which is really nice. You know, so that's got a lot of that coming in. Which makes a change from being blamed, <laughs> which is because usually it's more tonally along the lines of, I was all comfortable in setting my opinions, views and ways, and now you've only gone and made me have to change, you bastards. Yeah. <laughs> another one, another email that caught me was from Caroline, and she wrote in, uh, she's to say she'd read my book. Um, great. Not, not Ed's book. She made a point of saying that. <laughs> uh, she joined the local green campaigning group. She told everybody about the podcast. She joined Atlas of the Future, the anti-fashion and plastic drastic campaigns. And she also added that she uh, thought Coldplay were overrated. <laughs> so there you go. I think clearly a reliable and moral sort and the sort of listener that we want to encourage. Um, on Twitter, it's been nice too. Laura Trenfield said, I honestly think this podcast should be required listening for all humans. It's not a bad review, though, is it? Uh, some people wonder if we should go for longer episodes. They were so, so Stuart Gardner said, you know, should we go the full uh, three-hour format? Which I'm just not sure John's liver could handle that. No. What are you drinking for the beginning of Series 2, by the way, John? Uh, well, I'm on hard liquor. I've, I've gone straight into uh, to whiskey um, because I know we're, we're discussing a big topic today. So it felt like one that um, needed a heavy start. I'm basically a tidying up as well. I'm, uh, Christmas is in the offing. I want to buy some new alcohol. That means I have to tidy up the old alcohols. So anything that's <laughs> nearly gone, I sort of count it as recycling. I'll see that off tonight. That'll do. <laughs> um, so uh, talking about the post bag, uh, we had lots of suggestions for episodes that people wanted. Uh, universal basic income, population, traffic, housing, mining and resource extraction, diet, the future of hospitality, shipping. But Jeez, one that came all, in top- all the all the sexy stuff then. Yeah, yeah, all the really <laughs> sexy stuff. But we're going for one to open the series, which which lots of people have asked for, which is basically about economics, economic models that underpin the way we think about everything. So we'll get onto that in a minute. But uh, one thing I did want to say, John, is quite a lot of people were quite complimentary about you, saying that you were very respectful towards Ed and I. Didn't interrupt us all the time. I think they were a bit fed up with the John Hunt. Freeze on Radio Ford, and uh, they said, you know, unlike most celebrities whose egos dominate everything, um, yours was surprisingly small. Oh, what have you got to say about that? Uh, I have to first of all thank our esteemed uh, editor, Michael, who does a good job of fading down my microphone when he can hear me screaming at you and trying to get a point in. And, and, and I'd like to thank our listeners for interpreting my um, stupefied silence as I try and think of something relatively intelligent to say after you two have said something fascinating as as me respecting your intellect and um, I'm going to do that a lot more I'm going to use that I'm, I'm going to assume now actually that when Lucy ignores me it's simply that she's just absolutely in wonder at what I've just said and she's Perhaps now she's finally listening to many of these points. We got lots of uh, got lots of advice as well coming into the inbox. So some people giving us advice and some people asking us for advice. Um, Jeff Davis wrote in just to say that that everybody should be fitted with a John Richardson style cardigan, which would reduce our need for heating in the household and reduce our carbon emissions. And this would be a better use of the government's money than insulation grants, sort of a national cardigan grant. Do you have a view on that? I'm all for the the, uh, forwarding of cardigans. I got the most... if, If ever I've got an email that was designed to appeal to me and trigger most people... I got an email from a company this week that the subject of the email was, 
super cozy recycled vegan knitwear. I mean, <laughs> I could just hear Piers Morgan spitting into his laptop just at the very mention of it. <laughs> recycled cotton vegan knitwear. Absolutely. Take my money. Um, so we've also, other things that's been really nice, we've had lots of people who are doing innovative things um, getting in touch. So um, Steve Thornhill is trying to eradicate single-use food packaging, so he set up a company to do that. Um, it's a company called Mint Bio in New Zealand, which is uh, kind of recycling precious metals from old electronics. Uh, Sam Green, um, we actually had a call with Sam Green recently, who's creating a company to, to create ethical and sustainable PPE. So that's quite nice as well. And uh, we also had a lot of emails about the series finale if we can call it that. Um, for those of you who are joining uh, us for Series 2 and didn't listen to Series 1, um, John, would you like to explain what the end of Series 1 was, uh, what we chose as our series finale, and, and have you had any reflections upon it? Well, in an effort to uh, keep my genitals user-friendly but not commit to a full shower, I ended Series 1 by washing them in uh, an item called a testicuzzi, which is a jacuzzi for the testicles. And um, I'm not going to say I've used it a lot of times since, but <laughs> the times I have used it since we ended Series 1 have been a joy, have been a pleasure for me. I, I've got to admit, something something gets taken away from the experience when there aren't thousands of people listening. So using it upstairs on my own, slightly less in it for me, oddly, than broadcasting. So, um, But, you know, I, I have enjoyed it. So Neil sent us an email saying very nice things about the podcast, and then he ended his email by saying, I didn't get in touch just to blow smoke up your ass, although perhaps there's a machine that could do that that would be a convenient end for your second series. <laughs> Something to think about. I think we should explain also to people who are new to this at Series 2, that, you know, it's not just we randomly get you to do embarrassing things. We have this section called Pointless Futures, which we'll come to at the end of, end of this episode. So where, where somebody you know, sends us a, a product or an idea that we just think is ridiculous and kind of points to the wrong future. So it wasn't that you just decided to wash your balls at the audience. Somebody had spotted the testacuzzi and, and you being you, of course, John, <laughs> thought, I'll have that, I'll buy that, and I'll go for it. And, and we thank you for it. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Mayer wrote in to say um, she was listening to it while out on a walk and laughed so much that uh, she was really pleased that nobody was looking at her because she was in, in, in fits of laughter. So this, of course, leads us to the question of what can we do for the finale of this series? And I think, you know, answers on a postcard, please, listeners, because how do we top that? I mean, do we get you to do a shampoo and set on your balls at the end of this one? I don't know, John, what do you think? <laughs> how wonderful to have had a, a whole batch of emails about how much the first series has helped people make positive change in their life. And then end our first section basically saying, email in with suggestions for what we can do with our penises to end second series. <laughs> So very shortly, we will be joined by uh, a very special guest to get some information from an expert. Not that the two of you aren't experts. You are in so many ways. You teach me so much about what it is to be alive and what it is to share time together. But we're talking about the economy. So from the two of you, before we get to our guest, how fucked are we, economically speaking? Well, I think uh, we answered this question pretty well uh, with the entire of Series 1. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> where we discussed basically everything is broken. And, and, and quite often we came back to that same reason, which is how did we get so broken, in, in, whether it was to do with fashion or healthcare. And quite often we came back to the thing, we just marketized the whole world. 
and turned everything into uh, uh, some kind of value that somebody else can derive some profit or rent from. And therefore, you've got these very perverse incentives where healthcare became sick care. And you've got all these other things that weren't costed in. So, you know, mass inequality, environmental degradation, to the extent that, you know, and then you have this massive mental health meltdown and everybody hates their jobs because they're complicit in a system that's completely marketized and has destroyed, you know, all the things you really care about or, you know, uh, like family and, and the future. And, and I think it's all summed up brilliantly by, by Francis Bacon, who famously said, uh, money is a great servant, but it's a very bad master. And that actually was updated by Amory Lovins, uh, who runs the Rocky Mountain Institute a few years ago. He said, uh, he said, the markets make good servants, but bad masters and a far worse religion. I think, how fucked are we? You know, this podcast wouldn't exist unless we were monumentally fucked. Otherwise, we'd have nothing to talk about. So, uh, and the economic models that underpin and the economic dogmas that underpin all the other fucknesses, you know, are, are essentially the foundation, the ultimate fucking, the deep fucking, so deep that you don't know you're being fucked. It's like being fucked in your sleep by the devil because our economic systems have so changed the frame of reference that we don't even question them. And that is why I'm so excited that we have Kate Rayworth because she has taken on the devil and brought him out into the light and is fucking him back. Ed? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the most fucks we've ever had in a How Fucked Are We? That was an absolute cavalcade. And you said that if if we weren't so fucked, this podcast wouldn't exist. And I think a worse possibility awaits, which is that it would, and it would be week after week of you educating us on prog rock. (laughs) So thank goodness the world is fucked. It's the first time I've ever said that. Ed, take it away, and then we'll we'll see if Kate agrees with your diagnoses. I mean, basically, how do I I follow that from Mark? I, I think essentially economics is always supposed to be an art, not a science. And for me, we've turned what should be, you know, a classic piece of beautiful art connected to the full understanding of the way we think the world should actually function uh, into something which is utterly grotesque. So instead of a Van Gogh, we've got uh, Hieronymus Bosch uh, as a kind of masterpiece of the global economy. Uh, And that's what we need to change around. So if that's the mental image you want in terms of how fucked are we, think Hieronymus Bosch, a dark medieval Devils stabbing you in the bottom with pitchforks. I've got it. I'm holding on to it. That's the. It's not the image I intended to use as we introduce our guest. It wasn't the one I intended to use either. It just came to me. (laughs) Mark, you were kind enough to reach out to Kate, who was super kind enough to respond. So we'll allow you to uh, say all your thanks in the introduction of our guest. And and then we can get to whether she agrees that we're fucked. Maybe she's going to say, do you know what? Actually, I did a bit of research today and it turns out we're all right. We don't know. You have to pepper these podcasts with some hope. We'll find out. Mark. So, Kate Rayworth, what can we say about Kate Rayworth uh, that hasn't already been said by people far more intelligent than us? Kate is an economist, although some old school economists don't like to call her an economist because what she does is she comes in and says, you know, that economics you're doing, it's wrong. It's been wrong for a long time. And I'm going to show you how. And Kate wrote an incredibly influential book called Donut Economics, the donut as a model for looking at the economy and how it relates to the natural world um, is being adopted all over the world now by by a whole bunch of very diverse people. So it's a very, very powerful idea that's captured the imagination of people on the left, on the right, in the center, uh, in Africa, in Asia, in the West. Um, it's uh, now being regarded as sort of the next step forward for economic thinking by by many people. And I first came across Kate, I think, at a book festival. We were both talking um, along with her wonderful husband, Roman Chris Narek, who's written another excellent book called uh, 
called The Good Ancestor, which we, you should all read. Uh, so they're an amazing, extraordinary power couple who are, who are single-handedly saving the world. And Kate's ideas are being picked up all over the world, from communist China to Extinction Rebellion. She's one of those people who just draws back the veil and kind of goes, you know that thing you're doing? It's silly. And uh, maybe you want to do it more sensibly. So, Kate, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Are we fucked? How did we get this fucked? And what can we do about it? So let's start with, the, you know, are we terribly fucked economically, the economic systems we use? Is it, is it as bad as I and, and Ed said? Yes, pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much and good night. Uh, that was Kate Rayworth. The economic system, you're asking me, are we fucked on the economic systems that we use? Because we could, you could be talking about being fucked on a lot of different things. So we're talking about the economic systems. Yeah, I okay, I'm going to bring that bring out my big fuckery artillery on that one. We are definitely fucked on that one. But, but you know, if, if being fucked means no hope, then no. Oh. There is definitely a far better economic system waiting out there to be invented and rescued from the gutter and put into action. And of course, it's already happening. But yeah, it's a, it's a right old fuck up of what we've come to think is normal and what is being taught in universities and schools around the world. They're still, you know, welcome to economics is supply and demand as if nothing had ever happened in the last few decades. So it's outrageous. I'm intrigued already by the reference to Extinction Rebellion, which is which is a link I think most people wouldn't make between a, an economist on that side of the argument, and also your, your use there of the the word invention, an economic system to be invented. Is it that th- there isn't a working system anywhere, or is it that we just are so far behind? The people who are in power are so much in power of the decisions we make and what we see and what we're allowed to think about that it doesn't occur to us to switch. There are some great ideas out there that have been out there for decades. You could even trace them back centuries, but they are often shoved at the margins of what's thought of economic. So so I, I find it useful to think about economic as a theory, as what's in the textbook, what's taught. And then there's economics as policy and what policymakers are doing. And there's a long tail on that, right? So I'm nearly 50. And so what I was taught at university is probably what most current politicians were taught at university. So it's decades, decades out of date. And those ideas have a very long tail of influence. And there's new thinking coming through. And there's some brilliant old ideas that are finally getting airtime. And that's part of what I'm trying to do with Donut Economics is bring together the feminist economics, ecological economics, behavioral complexity, institutional economics. They had loads of brilliant ideas that have just always been kind of left at the fringes and called, oh, that's heterodox economics. Let's stick to the mainstream stuff. But if you pull those things out the shadows and put them center stage and see what happens when they dance together on the stage, they put on a pretty good show. And that's what's beginning to happen. And the student movement, I mean, the brilliant, amazing thing about economics is it's the only discipline that's managed to achieve the very people who choose to study it, who go to university and dedicate years of their life and thousands of pounds and dollars in in going into debt. They find as soon as they get to university that the first thing they have to do is campaign and lobby to rewrite the curriculum because they realize what they're being taught like out of date and not going to serve them for the 21st century. So kudos to economics because I don't know any other academic discipline that's managed to achieve that. So they're trying to change economics from the inside. So there's a lot of hope. So I'm, I don't want, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say it's all fucked like, oh, no hope because there's so much going on. There's so much rising up and financial meltdown and climate breakdown and COVID lockdown, these kind of recurring crises of that arise from the very systems that we've created, those are creating a lot of new momentum of people, in, especially politicians, searching for something that makes 21st century sense and it's not the old stuff. So is it at least partly to do with our obsession with GDP? I mean, from my understanding, you know, Simon Kuznets, a guy who 
came up with the kind of model of gross domestic product basically said you know whatever you do don't use this to measure quality of life so i mean where, where does that obsession with gdp come from and, and why is it so problematic in terms of you know the the, the fuckness of the economic system as we see it now uh yeah look simon kuznets brilliant guy brilliant economist in the 1930s in the us the us government said simon we don't actually know the value of what the american economy is producing each year we can only measure it in tons of steels and bags of grain could you figure out a way of adding this up he said, yes, sir, I will. And he wrote a report for Congress. And he said, here's a way you could add these things up together. I call it national income. It's the first national income accounts. And yes, you're absolutely right, Ed. He said, oh, by the way, small tip, don't think that this gives you a measure of the welfare of a nation. Why not? He wrote it beautifully. He said, well, it doesn't capture the value of the household. The unpaid caring work in the household doesn't tell anything about that. It doesn't tell us the value of communities and everything that goes on in community that makes a place worth living in. And also it only measures the stuff that you're selling. It doesn't capture the value of what you've given up to do that. So it gives you the price of the timber and it doesn't tell you the value of the forest that you cut down. So Simon had it completely under wraps, right? He had, it, he had it sorted out from day one, but the power of one number we know is incredibly tempting, right? Every news item that goes out, they want the killer stat, the killer stat. So economists got quite enticed by this one number. And then it was a really useful tool in World War II for America to figure out how much of our economy do we need to reorient towards the war machine and how much do we need to hold back for domestic production. So it was a very, very handy war tool. It's a really good war tool. And then post-war, there's the Cold War. So the US versus the USSR, suddenly whose ideology can turn out more stuff? And we're looking at that in national income. So it became this competition of ideologies. And then by the 1960s, really interesting, when the OECD was created, like based in the Western economies, the Western allies created this organization of economic cooperation development. They said Article 1A of their constitution was to aim for the highest sustainable rate of growth. And they started printing these tables, national tables, comparing one country against another on their growth rate. So then it became this horse race of who had the highest mm. growth rate. And it was seen as a panacea that, you know what, if you have growth, it'll get rid of unemployment, get rid of your trade deficit, get rid of your budget deficit. Don't really need to tackle inequality because we'll all grow so everyone get a bit more anyway, won't they? So it just became this panacea for any kind of macroeconomic problem you have. And then it was only in the 1970s, then limits to growth folks and came and said, hang on a minute, we're running into Earth's boundaries. So it had this big run from the 30s up to the 70s, unquestioned. Because the model is not, and, and in the TED talk you do, you, you say this, the, the whole ethos or philosophy behind it is, you know, if it creates a bit of inequality, don't worry, because it'll even that out a bit later. Oh, and if, if it creates pollution, don't worry, growth will make sure we can find somewhere to get you know, it. It's like, it, it, it's, it's self-referential. Don't worry, I'll solve it. Growth will solve everything. And Edward Abbey famously said, of course, that uh, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. But it seems so embedded. And, and even like I find it strange that you watch, say, the BBC News and they'll talk about growth and the markets and all that kind of stuff. As it, and it's not the frame is not questioned at all anywhere, it seems, in, in the popular discussion of, of economics. Because it has been the predominant frame and the deepest metaphor, I think, of what we think human progress is in Western societies. So this idea of growth, this idea of forwards and upwards, it's really deeply embedded in our culture, you know, a little child, you love it when you see your little baby wobbling and then start crawling forwards and pull themselves and stand up. So that forwards and up is one of the most basic things that the human body does. And we tell ourselves that the story that we evolved from lolloping apes to standing upright. So forward and up is the very deep sense of progress at the bodily level. And that's partly why we, we take it as a metaphor at the economical level, societal level. And also, you know, I've got 11 year old kids, twins, 
and they're growing really fast and growth at a certain phase of life is a really fantastic sign of health, right? It's a healthy phase of life, but nothing in nature tries to grow forever. Or indeed, if it is, it's as you just said, it becomes the cancer cell and anything that grows endlessly within a healthy, living, delicately balanced living system, it acts like a cancer threat to it and it, dis it disrupts the, the health of the whole. So it's just really bizarre that people think growth they only hear one end of that metaphor. They only hear the, the, young, the young person growing taller, the shoots, the green new shoots. They forget the other end of the metaphor. You know, if I told you my friend went to the doctor and the doctor said she had a growth, we already mm. know what that feels like. That makes mm. us go silent mm. because we know the other end of the growth story. So we fully understand this whole thing. But Western society is hung on to the idea that we're still in the early shoots. We're still in the early days. We have to stand back and look at the climate reality but we're clearly massively overshooting our impact on the planet. We're disrupting the life supporting systems that underpin our well-being. So we're at the other end of the growth metaphor and we have to massively redesign our relationship. The trouble is that we've created institutions, meanwhile, that are structurally expect, demand and depend upon growth, our pensions, our employment. Uh, so we've created systems that think this escalator will always go up. And then when you come to realize it probably can't, what the heck do you do with re-gearing all those institutions and taking the growth dependency out of them? It's there, right, in the nursery rhyme, isn't it? The old lady who swallowed a fly, you know, and then she swallowed a spider to catch the fly. And it's <laughs> yeah. like the kind of perpetual growth. And I, I always think that when people sort of prescribe that growth solution, as Mark was outlining and you were kind of expanding on, it's a bit like the solution to the problems of industrial capitalism is unlikely to be more industrial capitalism. And he's made this point before about, you know, we're kind of addicted to it sort of financially, politically, socially. And one of the things you said that really struck home with me was because we define whether you're a successful economy or not by growth. If you stop growing, then you don't get in the G7 or the G20 or whatever. And so as a nation, you suddenly feel kind of or somehow, you know, a little bit shabby. And therefore, our global politics, you know, whether you're in the G20 or the G7, is all based around whether you're growing or not. And therefore, at a very sort of geopolitical level, it, it, it frames everything as to whether you're a successful nation. Or not. Yeah. And actually, I think I think you've hit on the, the really tough one. Like if you think of all the different structural dependencies, of why we're hooked into growth and how could we unhook that? I always think of it like no no political leader wants to lose their place in the G20 family photo, right? They don't want to be elbowed off that carpet and say, sorry, you're, you're, you're not growing and everyone else kept growing, so make way for somebody else. But the deeper thing is, is growth is resources and resources is power and power is geopolitical positioning. And Mark, I know you like hanging out with the military, so this stuff must come close to home, <laughs> right? Like this is about one nation's geopolitical power against another and just in case we need that. So... To me, that's that like geopolitical positioning. How do you create a different kind of geopolitics that each nation doesn't demand that it keeps growing to keep up with the rest who keep growing to keep up with them? The only thing I've seen so far of it, it's not quite geopolitical, but it's like there's a small group of countries, including Scotland, Wales, New Zealand, um, parts of Scandinavia, Iceland, coincidentally run by women, but you know, we'll, we'll let that pass, um, <laughs> that have said, you know, we're not going to be the top of this G20 table. So let's just go off and do something more interesting. And they are getting together as the well-being alliance governments. And they're saying we are creating economies based on well-being. We're not going for that growth thing. We're doing something more interesting. And that's the beginning of, a, you could say, a small breakaway group doing the right thing. It will be fascinating to see one of the really dominant countries that is big in the G20 choose to join them as well. 
can I just drill down into what? Because we're saying we a lot, and, and we're talking a lot about governments and systems. And we always talk at the end about how do we improve the situation? How can we do it as an individual? How how have we as individuals allowed ourselves to get? Because when you talk about GDP at that top level was never meant to be a measure of happiness. How have we as individuals contributed to a system where we depend on growth and we don't question that our happiness is going down and our share of the world's resources is going down and we're destroying the planet and yet the figures tell us, well, we should be happier because our economy is growing. So I think one way it's happened is the the American dream story that kind of rose post-war, the 50s and 60s, the idea that, of course, your kids are going to have just that little bit more than you had and you've done good by them and they've got more security than you had. So that idea that we would, we as a family now, let's say, would accumulate and just just be better off each generation to the next. But also, I think it goes to the 20th century history of advertising invented by Edward Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who brilliantly took his uncle's psychotherapy, which realized that we had these deep-seated needs to be respected and admired and loved and to belong. And Edward Bernays thought, oh, if I can take that deep human need and connect it to a new car or a new phone or a new jacket, I've invented advertising. And he did. And he, and he turned, you know, psychotherapy into retail therapy. And he invented what he called propaganda and brilliantly managed to sell hearty bacon for breakfast and sausages for breakfast. And he managed to convince women that smoking was a symbol of freedom. And so it created the kind of 20th century consumer culture that has worked on our minds so fantastically. And I just wish he was alive. I'd say, Edward, well done. Now, can you join the other team? Mm -hmm. Can you now mm -hmm. use those very same tricks to help us actually de-hook ourselves from consumerism and thinking that by buying something new and by impressing people as Tim Jackson's, you know, buying things we don't need to make impressions that don't last on people we don't know. Could you help us like let go of all that? Because that's what we need to do next. Well, that, and that's an interesting point, though. So do you think that those same tactics and strategies as deployed by Bernays and, you know, and that advertising industry, do you think they can effectively switch people? Or do you think something more soulful and reflective is required? Is it okay to manipulate people into doing the right thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm being flip, of course, but I would like him on the other team. And I'd like people who understand what do we actually deeply want? I think he knew that. Mm. He knew that we deeply want to belong or to be admired or to be acknowledged. So how do you meaningfully enable people to belong and be admired for what and to be acknowledged for what? Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, you're right, Ed. I mean, of course, you don't want it to be done in a manipulative way. But I do think, I mean, I think we can nudge behavior. You know, sometimes people get very upset. It's like, you can't nudge people. That's really manipulative. Everything in the world is a nudge. If there's a bus lane, it's a nudge. If there's a bike lane, it's a nudge. Uh, so everything is designed that shapes humans' behavior. So if we if we kind of refuse nudge, we're just allowing ourselves to be nudged by what other people want. And I, if you if you want to lean in and say, actually, let's figure out what are the designs that make it easy for people to bike instead of take the car or take the bus. What are the designs that make it easy for people to eat healthy food and easy to find a vegetarian meal on the menu? So I do think there are definitely ways we can redesign the spaces we live in, what the offer, what's on offer, and, and how advertising works and what we're being shown is a good life. Yeah. That definitely can change. Because that's interesting, because if you are going to deploy that expertise, it's almost like advertising is going to have to work out how to sell us much less uh, <laughs> and sell us very different things, which... 
you know, the whole basis of advertising is predicated on exactly the growth that's the problem in the first place. So it's interesting what that industry would have to look like. So, of course, companies are still going to want to sell us things, but they want us to buy that fridge or bag or phone that you believe will last and that you know you can get repaired and you can get just the smallest part replaced and upgraded when it needs to be. So advertising that talks to us about the quality of something and why you'll want to have it. Uh, you know, there's that, that watch company that always says, you know, you never own um, I don't even want to say their name, but you never own one of these watches. You just look after it for the next generation. Well, that would be wonderful if you could repair it and upgrade it and fix it and always know that you could mend the next part. And that should be our much more our relationship with all kinds of objects. So there's still a role for advertising to show us and compel us to be part of a repairing and making and changing community that's sort of refurbishing, remanufacturing the creativity that goes into that. But it's very, very, very different probably very different salaries that they should be paid and so be it i i don't know kate as well as you do mark but do you think this would be a good time to tell her that i've got a pair of underpants that i found in a tumble dryer 20 years ago in a laundrette or do you think that would, be a, <laughs> would that put her off having come on our podcast i can give you an answer to that john myself i, I found I, I had this dress that i wore to uh, to do my ted talk actually stand on the big stage at ted and my mum who cares a lot about how I dress? She said, oh, I did like your dress. And I said, mum, I found it in a wet heap on the wall at the end of the road. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, yes. wow. But I have a question for both of you, actually, Kate and John, because you both had careers that have enjoyed a great deal of success, actually, and have become more influential. And, you know, John, you know, you started in small clubs and now you're, you know, what is it, Britain's third favourite comedian <laughs> or something or other. You know, and Kate, you've you've, you've gone from, and we'll get on to the, the donut in a minute, but you've gone from writing that book to suddenly talking to all sorts of people. About, and I, I just had this kind of question, have you... Have you yourselves found yourselves kind of seduced by growth? Oh, I've got to do more of this, got to do more of that. I'm earning a bit more money. I can put that blah, blah. Have you found yourself on that treadmill and kind of had to go, oh, you know, and I think you might have slightly different answers. But I mean, John in particular, you know, there is this kind of uh, almost inflationary thing in comedy where, you know, you've got to sell out the O2. And I'm just wondering, Kate, as you've become more and more successful and more and more influential, have you found yourself trapped by the very things that, or or, or challenged by the very things you're trying to, to free us from? Ooh. So I think there's a really deep-seated tendency in people to accumulate things. And I'm always really curious to find out, so what do you accumulate? You know, like if you go to a car boot sale, oh, there's the lady who accumulated toy elephants and she's now getting rid of them mm. all. And some people accumulate lonely planet guides and trips around the world and mountains they've climbed. And you can find these little shrines in their house that kind of... So I'm always looking for it, like, what am I trying to accumulate here? Um, I think there was a time when I was really enjoying being on Twitter and, and you know, you can get caught in that thing of followers. And then you just think, what the heck? Why, why do I care? And, and I've just completely let go of that. What I'm doing now, though, is having set up Donate Economics Action Lab, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to move that energy away from people saying, can we talk to you? And I think, you know, it's actually not really me you want to talk to, you need to talk to, because the most inspiring person isn't that person on a stage or, or on the radio. It's the person who's most like you, who's doing that thing that you thought was impossible, but they're, look, they're doing it. And you can be inspired by them. So we've created this online community so that teachers can inspire teachers and mayors can inspire mayors and businesses can inspire businesses and cities can inspire cities. So I'm really enjoying growing that. And we've, we launched just uh, three weeks ago and we've got two and a half thousand members. And I was really enjoying watching those numbers go up. And then actually after 2000, I thought, you know what? I don't care because 
let's just work with this community. So I'm always trying to take the edge off that desire to accumulate because I think it is a deeply human thing. And that's why profit and wealth and GDP are so attractive because it's this thing mm. you can accumulate, but you really have to take yourself off it and ask yourself, what do I actually want? How can I free myself from pursuing that? Because it's not going to take me where I want to get to. So, John, clearly getting rid of audience. And, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm working on the it. Way, it's, it's the way to go. And uh, actually looking at, you know, some of your most recent work, I think you're, <laughs> it's, it's amazing what you're doing. <laughs> It's selfless. Yeah. It's truly selfless. I've managed not to work. I mean, I mean, you're literally the only people I've spoken to in a professional capacity since March. So you, you are my audience, <laughs> the two of you. <laughs> you know, for me, it's about having a simple life and, you know, not having the trappings, you know, he says from the pub that he's built in his own garage. It's hard. I, I think because with, with what I do, there is there's definitely a balance between the, the amount you can amplify your voice, the number of people you can reach and what you want to say. And there are... There are comedians who want to do something very avant-garde and push a niche point and work in small venues and be able to take risks. And clearly, I don't want to do that. There are comedians who want to... There's a lot of comedians who want to break America. It's never interested me because the work I'd be doing there is the same as here. But obviously, there's a size of audience I want to play to where your voice can have an impact. I want to play a big theatre in a town so that you can influence a number of people. But even that, and where it's not my motivating factor. My motivating factor is to make people laugh. And more and more, that's all I want to do. I, I used to be a lot more political in my act. And the last few tours, I, I have shied away because I think people are so unhappy now. Lives are so hard that I, I don't mind being seen as a 90-minute release. But this podcast and... The themes that we've talked about that I'll try and do routines on in the next tour are about surreptitiously, if I did it overtly, and I'm assuming the people that listen to this podcast might come and see me on tour, but most people who come and see me on tour won't listen to this podcast and won't want to hear me say, actually, I'm going to trick you into listening to a routine about, you know, I could do a routine about having a pair of underpants for 20 years, but I couldn't stand on stage and say, you need to shed yourselves of the desire to own new things. So, oh, well, I like that. The fact that you basically said, I mean, you know, Ed and I were thinking we really need to get a celebrity into to increase our audience. <laughs> so, so talking about growth there, then I think it's quite mm. interesting how you both answer that question, because what you're actually saying, John, is you want to grow human happiness. So your growth is a kind of the growth that we may not account for. I'm just going to interject very briefly because whilst I do want that, hearing you say it back to me made me feel sick about myself. <laughs> so let's be in no Aww. doubt. Let's be in no doubt that I am also amassing personal wealth, which I spend <laughs> on myself and my family. But I do just want to make people happy, so long as they pay. <laughs> <laughs> so Kate, how do we? How do we unfuck ourselves? We start again. We pull out a pencil and we draw the beginnings of a new economy because I don't think you can fix the old models. And I think you need, they're like graffiti on the mind. They sit in your mind, supply and demand, you know, sits in your mind and you can't rub it out. You have to paint something much better over the top. So I took out a pen and started drawing new pictures and we need to start with a vision of where we want to get to. So I drew one that looks like a donut, the kind with the hole in the middle. You want to leave nobody in the hole in the middle of the donut. That's where people are falling short on the essentials of life. That's where people don't have the food and water and healthcare and housing and political voice and gender equality and income that every person has a claim to. So leave no one in the hole, but also don't overshoot the outer ring of the donut because that's where we 
destroy the living systems of the planet. That's where we cause climate breakdown and acidify the oceans and create a hole in the ozone layer. So it's a really, really different shape of progress. It's not this ever rising line of growth that goes through the ceiling and then some. It's a dynamic balance between the inside and the outside of the donut. Meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. Find a way to balance. Got to thrive in that dynamic. And it's more like a heartbeat than an endlessly growing cancer cell. So, and it actually really interesting, it, it echoes the symbol of well-being that you'd see in many ancient cultures like the Taoist yin yang or the Buddhist endless knot or the Maori takarangi or the Celtic double spiral. They're all these sort of circular images with some inner tension sprung in them, which I think is really interesting. It's like you suddenly realize when you look at all these other cultures that the Western concept of success being endless growth, that's the outlier. Mm. that's the one that doesn't make sense next to everybody else so, and, and was it a eureka moment yeah i was sitting at my desk in oxfam i come back from maternity leave i had two tiny children i'd spent an, a year in the kind of knee deep in nappies really immersed in the unpaid care economy and i was sitting at my desk and someone said oh you know what's been going over the previous year here have a look at these images and there was this planetary boundaries diagram so think of it as a circle with these big red lines shooting out like sort of emergency warning signs that we were outside of the ring and the planetary boundaries is the idea of earth's life support systems and we were overshooting them we're way over on climate change you're using too much fertilizer converting too much of earth's land surface killing too many species and that was a eureka moment it really was a kind of visceral moment at my desk because i thought wow that is the beginning of economics that we've been missing all along there were always economists like herman daly like the limits to growth people who'd said the economy is a subsystem of the living world. But mainstream economics never drew the living world. They just gave you supply and demand. And to me, it's like, oh, wow, the Earth system scientists have drawn the living world. And they haven't just drawn it, they've labeled it. And they haven't just labeled it, they've put numbers on it. They've said, this is the limit of carbon dioxide we can put in the atmosphere, and we're over. So I thought this was amazing. But that whole circle wasn't a safe space for humanity, as they called it, because if you go right to the middle of the circle where humanity puts no pressure on the planet, that means no fertilizer, no water withdrawals, no carbon emissions, no converting land. I thought, well, that's that's death and destruction for billions of people right there. So there must be a space where we do use and interact with Earth's resources. And so I drew an inner circle inside theirs and it looked like a donut. And then, to be honest, I put it in the bottom drawer of my desk because I thought, well, you know, I like that, but scientists will probably laugh or say, yes, dear, you know, go back to your NGO job. So I literally put it in the bottom of the drawer of my desk for about six months. And then these conversations just kept popping up. And I said, oh, I have got this picture. And people say, yeah, that's good. That's good. And I, and I went to a workshop with these Earth System scientists. And somebody said, I'm looking at the woman from Oxfam because this planetary boundaries concept doesn't have any people in it. And it's one of those moments you think, am I going to do I do this? Do I? do I show them that thing I drew? And I jumped up and I drew it on the wall really quickly because I really thought these are, this is kind of the inferiority of kind of social sciences to natural science. I really thought these scientists say, yes, dear, sit down. And one of them just said, that's the diagram we've been missing all along. And it's not a circle, it's a donut. That's where the name came from. Blame him, not me. And that gave me a conviction. I'm being really honest. That gave me a conviction in my belly. Oh, the earth system scientists have said this is okay. Then it must be okay. And I basically haven't looked back since that day. That was the 18th of October, 2011. And it's just been a role since then. And when I then drew it and we published it as an Oxfam discussion paper in 2012, people just flocked to this picture. And then I realized the power of pictures. Wow, people respond to pictures, stuff words. Let's redraw the pictures. But it is interesting on that picture front, because I mean, I mean, what is the most ridiculous 
uh, economic model illustration you've ever seen? Well, the worst, the, the one that's caused the most trouble was drawn by Paul Samuelson, who's like kind of one of the big names of economics in the post 50s. He was teaching at MIT in 1948. He was a really mathematical economist, actually. He loved his obscure equations. And MIT was packed full of American servicemen who were returning from war, getting the education they'd missed out on. They were all coming to study engineering. And they, of course, had to study a little bit of economics on the side, like everybody did. And uh, the head of department came to Paul Samuel and said, so Paul, these guys, they hate the economics they're being taught. Please, please, will you just put your equations aside for a term? Come and teach them. You can just put in the good stuff, leave out what you want to leave out. Economics is yours. And Paul Samuelson came over and he, he thought, OK, I'm going to draw a picture of the economy for these engineer students. So he drew this picture of the economy. Think of it as sort of, it's like a two pipes connecting, going round in a circle between the household and the market. And there's a pipe that connects the household to the market and then another pipe that goes, loops around the market, the household. And he drew this very basic diagram looking like a radiator system with water flowing around the tanks because they were engineering students. So he was making it really easy for them. It was a cool diagram because it shows that when you pay somebody a wage, they can buy things from you. And when they buy things from you, you can employ someone and you can pay them a wage. So there's this circularity between wages and spending. It's a really important point. But this diagram was so kind of foundational in his textbook that it became the diagram that students are still taught today and they've added a few more loops in. But the tragedy of it is it makes it look like the economy is a closed circular system mm -hmm. and that it keeps itself going and a bit of government spending that comes back in a bit of trade comes back in banks comes back in it completely misses the fact that the economy draws in the matter and the energy of the living world and spews out waste and pollution mm. by the way it also runs on the unpaid caring work of women who get labor ready for work every day but are missing from that picture and it runs on society well mainstream students are taught this diagram still today so the major diagram that says this is the biggest picture of the economy we have it's completely silent on the living world silent on unpaid care and silent on society and these are three of the biggest sources of our well-being so it's a disaster and you can hear that picture in news commentary in conversations in the pub you can hear that picture all the time can't you that picture is what is used to measure gdp so that's what shows up in the GDP stat that you said, all the news readers said, you know, climate change, this is the hottest year on record, la 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 la. In other news, GDP increased by 1.5%. It's just like total disconnect. And that picture is what underpins it. So this is the power of the pictures. And that's why we have to get rid of them and redraw them. And the first diagram in economics should be the economy drawn inside society, drawn inside the living world. So you can't do anything in the economy without asking how does it impact on society in the living world? Forget the idea of externalities. There are no externalities. They're just side effects you weren't bothering to notice. Let's bring them in because some of them turn out to be called climate change. And that ain't no externality. It's the biggest feedback loop we've ever known. Knowing what we know now about how long there is then, how, how late we are in addressing some of these issues and how urgent it is that we get change, that model there where you would change the diagrams to the people that we teach and the people that we teach then become the leaders and the economists of the next 30, 40 years. How do you cut that short now? How do you go to the Trumps, the Putins, the Johnsons and try and get straight in there and say this whole thing is wrong and not working? Great question. So personally, I've never tried to go to a Trump or a Putin or a Johnson because this work that I've been, I'm just talking about me, right? We need activists and people who lock on and pull down and protest and expose and reveal corruption and who try to pull down the old system. But I've been doing this work as a mother of twins over the last decade. So I've had almost no time. So for me, my strategy was always, I just don't knock on a shut door. So I have never tried to persuade anybody ever 
why they should use the donut, why it's a good idea, why you should like, I'm, I'm not going to waste my few hours with you. I'm going to go where the energy is. I'm just going to talk to the people who say, this sounds good. I want to hear about that. Can you come here? Can we architects, teachers, cities, designers, food system people, students, just go where the energy is. So I don't talk to the Trumps and the Putins. We need people who do that, but I'm just being really frank. I don't know how to do that. You, you might try and get in their mindset, show them it's in their self-interest. But personally, I'm just not going there because that probably would make me think we're all fucked and I would feel incredibly depressed. But I work with the people who are making it happen, who are already putting it to practice and inspiring others. And that's why I'm still here. And that's why I've got loads of energy for it, because I can see another economy merging. And we need to bring down the old economy and we need to bring up the new one. I'm just going to put all my life force into emerging that new one and know that I'm part of a much bigger team that's doing the whole job altogether. This reminds me of two quotes, one from um, Gaylord Nelson, who said, we have to remember that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment, not the other way around, uh, which is kind of what your work kind of talks to. Uh, and the second <laughs> quote was, uh, was Buckmeister Fuller's famous quote, which is, you know, don't try and fix the existing system, go and build something better. And it's yeah. so, and, and you've like, one of the really exciting things that's happened recently with your work is that whole cities are now using the donut. And I'm thinking about Amsterdam is now starting to use that as an economic model for the city. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, it sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? Like Amsterdam doing the donut all the way back to that earth system scientist, Tim Lenton, let me put his name on the record, who said, oh, it's not a circle, it's a donut. Little did he know that a decade later, there would be a headline in the newspaper, Amsterdam adopts donut model. And you've got all these politicians running around saying we're going to do the donut. Yeah, so Amsterdam, um, really interesting. A city that said we're going to be 100% circular economy by 2050. I love it because no one knows what that means yet. They're going to be fossil fuel vehicle free by 2030. And so they're transitioning their energy system. And so they were looking for a model that meant they didn't have five different strategies, but that brought everything together. And when they found the donut, they said, yep, that's it, because it, we can see all the change we're trying to make in this system. And it means we do them together. So we do it equitably, we do it inclusively, and we do an energy system that makes sense with a circular system. So they started using the donut in drawing up their circular strategy. And then we, we figured out a method for downscaling. I'll give you the question, right? So think of a city you know, and we invite every city to ask itself this question. How can your city be a home to thriving people in a thriving place while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet? So what does it mean to be thriving people here, right? The culture, the history, the norms of that place. What does it mean to you in that? Stockholm and Dar es Salaam are going to come up with completely different answers. What does it mean to be thriving here? What does it mean for our city to thrive in this place? Every city is located in a different place on Earth's biome. And nature does different things. Like nature's genius of thriving is different. So how does nature sequester carbon here? How does nature store groundwater or house biodiversity or cool the air? Can our city aim to match or exceed the generosity of nature? So that's local aspiration. And then we say, well, you've got to think of the food and electronics and consumer goods and construction materials that you're importing into your city every day. Whose work went into that, into picking and packing and sewing and stitching and transporting and carrying off the waste? How do the supply chains that your city is served by respect the rights of people worldwide and all the materials and the energy and the carbon and the fertilizer and the land? How can your city come back within its share of pressure on the planet? So it's a really, really ambitious question that we ask cities. Amsterdam, interestingly, published their city donut in April this year, which was the their height of COVID infections. And they did it because they said, well, we may be in the middle of a crisis, but when we emerge from a crisis, where are we going to go? We're going to use this to pivot, and this is the direction we want to move in. And as I was saying earlier, like peer-to-peer -peer inspiration, the minute Amsterdam 
published it. I, mean, I could tell, you know, cities all over the place. Oh, it's not just this crazy lady talking about donuts. Like Amsterdam are doing it. And suddenly it just started getting traction everywhere. And that's the power of the leader that inspires the others. Like, oh, this is a thing now. Apparently we can talk about doing donuts in our city. So that's really taking off. Is that the key to unfucking ourselves then? You know, like lobbying at a grassroots or a local level for you're getting your city or regional administration to try and embrace the donut. Yeah, and showing and just showing them, you know, again, I, I'm not one for kind of lobbying and pushing. So just saying, oh, it's interesting. They're doing it in Cambridge. Oh, in Berlin. Oh, Brussels. Look at mm. that. Oh, they're doing it in Costa Rica. Interesting. Oh, in Colombia as well. Interesting, eh? Cornwall. And places thinking, God, we're all searching. We policymakers are searching for where the heck do we turn from here? But I did want to ask a question, Kate, which is something that I think find quite surprising because it, it strikes me that lots of economic doctrines or models or ways of thinking about economics are often in people's minds tied to some kind of political ideology. They're either left wing or they're right wing, you know. And it seems to me that what the donuts managed to do, it's somehow your conception of what an economic system should be it hasn't been captured by the left or the right. I mean, I've seen it discussed at, you know, Extinction Rebellion meetings and I've seen it discussed at the World Economic Forum. So is that because you're not pushing it or is there something about it that just speaks to everybody? It's a great point and it's really important to me, everything you just said about it not being, oh, this is a left thing or a right thing or a green thing. Or First of all, the inside of the donut is, is just the social priority that they set out in the Sustainable Development Goals. So that means that all the governments in the world have already agreed that every person has a claim to this. So food and water, housing, healthcare. Right? What's not to like? That's not political. This is what we call human rights and we've been calling them that for, for over nearly, nearly a century. And then the outside the donut is just what the world's Earth system scientists are telling us. By the way, guys, the reason why this is the one habitable planet in the universe is it's got these really cool attributes. It's got a stable climate. It's got fresh water cycle. It's got an ozone layer. It's got soil. It's got trees and biodiversity. So that's not political. So the, the definition of what the donut is aiming for makes sense to human beings everywhere, mm. whatever political badge they wear. Now, in the UK, I'm really pleased that it's actually been picked up across the political spectrum from the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats, Labour, Conservatives. There are people in all of those parties who've invited me on stage or said they've read it or are engaging with it. And the Women's Equality Party in the UK just voted with 99% of members voting yes to make donut economics at the heart of their policies. That's really cool. And that's a political first. And that's incredible. And it's fantastic to hear, actually. On the flip side of that, what is the sort of sniffy dismissiveness you've had from people sort of saying, you know, it's not real economics or that, you know, even though it, it quite blatantly totally does encapsulate the real world, do you get that kind of like, oh, well, this is just jam today, jam tomorrow kind of thinking? I think there's a hole in your argument is the best one that they seem to think uh, is very oh funny. Oh, yeah. yeah, or this might go stale. Um, yeah. yeah, whatever. Um, so the, dism I have the dismissal, I've never seen it from politicians, actually. Really? Um, so, so again, because I have my strategy is I've never knocked on a shut door. I'm not going to knock and come and beg, please use this idea. And that's just, that's just not a smart way of getting ideas taken off. I always wait for engagement. So within universities, politics urban design, architecture, international relations, business schools, geography. They're all just like, yeah, this makes sense. You want to talk about which department? Economics. Door shut. <laughs> just silence. So that's really interesting to me. And that's and what? Like, jealousy? That's people entrenched in? They're embarrassed? Get them on a podcast and ask them. I think it's when you start economics with saying the economy, 
is a wholly owned subsidiary of the living world and we're going to draw inside it and show that the flows in and out well first of all paul samuelson's diagram of that circular flow going around around that's kind of out the window that's our that's our core model that's what we teach on day one and supply and demand of the market we we don't start that what but that's where every curriculum every textbook begins so it's a real threat it kind of pulls the rug out from this is how we do it and also growth what do you mean you can't just say growth and everyone knows that that's a good thing and we tick you know this this policy will lead to growth tick so it, it caused some very fundamental questions. I think also because I'm quite silly. I mean, donuts for heaven's sakes. I mean, that's not exactly a, a you know an austere way to come in through them. And I play with toys and I play with hose pipes. And yeah, I think they're kind of hoping it'll go away. So one way to make things go is kind of ignore, ignore mm. or or put down. And, you know, I've sometimes been in debates with economists and they say, well, I think the real question we're debating here this evening is, is Kate an economist? To which I just think, wow, do you really mm. have to... To reach for that, is that the best mm. argument? You, I'm so sorry, it's so threatening to you if that's the best thing you can come up with. Yeah. So all wow. coming back to my Guardian review, John Richardson may be a comedian, but he deals in anecdotes rather than punchlines. I feel, Ooh, I feel they like to deal them out. Common ground there. Yeah. I've moved on now. <laughs> I love the way, John, you're trying to sort of equate yourself with one of the greatest economic thinkers of the 21st I century. I think, yeah, we've, yeah, we've got a lot of similarity. <laughs> I also play with toys. Yes, but let's... Let, let's leave that. Let's leave that. <laughs> so we talk quite a lot about, uh, or we have talked a lot, quite a lot about mental health on the show and how, you know, when you're dealing with big systemic problems and the world seems fucked, and we, you understand how it got so fucked, sort of keeping your, yourself motivated and whatever. And, and you, you are, like, insanely busy. You've become, as you say, uh, to some people, a centre of attention. If some people are very sniffy about you. Your work is actually incredibly high tariff and very important. How do you keep yourself sane? How do you manage it? Because ever since that day, the 18th of October 2011, when I drew this donut on the wall and people said, yeah, go for that. It's just been a huge, playful adventure. It gave me permission to talk about donuts and be silly. And I'm now at the point where we've set up Donut Economics Action Lab and it's how do we turn this into a community? How do we separate me from the idea and make it its own thing? And then, and what can we do next? It's it's just brilliant working with a team and playing. But the thing that keeps me going, Mark, is all the people who get in touch every day. The teacher who says, well, I'm teaching this. It's not in the curriculum, but I think this is what the first thing my A-level students should learn. Or, you know, the cities that say we started to do this or the companies that say we're using it. Or, or Extinction Rebellion saying we want to do massive donuts. We want to make a donut around the treasury. Brilliant. I love it. Mm. So that just gives me huge energy. And, you know, are we fucked? Are we, hey, is it too late? Are we too many? Is it too hard? I don't know. But I'm just totally happy to say I'm going to stand on the side that's holding it up and pushing it over and bringing up the new. And I'm totally happy to dedicate my time and energy. I get to get to chat to folks like you. What's not to like? So down the line, is this going to be the kind of the Chicago School and Milton Friedman impacts on the kind of the reimagination uh, of the global economy? Well, I have to say I'm dead proud. There's a new economics textbook come out from Oxford University Press. It's for um, the International Baccalaureate. So any students who are kind of studying the IB and in the, the opening chapter is called The Evolution of Economic Thinking. And it goes Adam Smith, and John Mill and Karl Marx and uh, John Maynard Keynes and Milton Friedman. And then it goes circular economy. And then it goes donut. And the last thing is donut. So it's like, yes, in the textbooks with all the big white men loving it and the, but the brilliant thing about that is it means that now all the teachers in the ib can say well now this is on the curriculum like i'm not even doing naughty things on the side this is on the curriculum i can teach this to my students so it's creeping in and yeah the day that economics degrees start you know economics ancient greek it means ekos nomos it means the art of household management so 
Let's not be so arrogant to think that we can manage the household without even understanding it. Let's start by understanding the household and the planetary home. Let's start by understanding its inhabitants and what are actually our essential needs. So let's start with the donut. This gives us the household and who in whose interest we want to manage it. And then let's ask ourselves about the markets, the incentives in the state, in the commons, in the household, and how the heck we design and unfuck this system. I saw that you tweeted today something. Uh, somebody you know on Twitter said, that it's my birthday, give me some advice. And you responded, um, celebrate by letting go of something you know it's time to let go of. What is the thing that we should let go of? Uh, yeah, just let go of something. Um, so let me give you the context of that. Oh God, I'm going to say this and it's going to be on podcast. I'm going to have to do it now. So we're going to let go of our car. It's time to just let go of a car. Like I, we, we got, we've got a, wow. we've gotten a car when our children were, we had a car and it broke, but when we had tiny baby twins and I could never get anywhere to see my parents. So we said, we're going to get a car. So we got a car and our twins are 11. Like they bike everywhere. We, I can't justify having that car anymore. And I read and I hear and I see the news and I cannot justify owning a car and it's time to let go of the car. So I think it was Adam Fish, just for the record, who whose birthday was happy birthday, Adam. I'm 50 in December. So I hereby say on air, I'm going to let go of my car by the time I turn 50. Wow. So there are... There's a really cool website that's just been released for people who say, okay, I, in my life, want to take serious action to say that I have done everything I can do to live within a world that keeps global heating under 1.5 degrees. And it's called takethejump.org. So you can take the jump and do the things you'd need to do. Here's the kind of thing, kind of get rid of the car. Uh, only buy two or three new items of clothing a year. So you're fine, John. Keep on those underpants from the stranger. That's good. Uh, <laughs> only take one short haul flight every two or three years. Uh, only change your phone about once every seven years. Eat plants, not meat. So they're quite significant things. And you can say, which ones am I going to do? Am I going to do all of them? Am I going to do it for a month, three months? So if people seriously are saying, I want to do something, take the jump.org. But then there's all sorts of other things you can do and, and maybe use your birthday to switch your bank account away from the big nasty banks that everyone grew up having a bank account with. Why? Why stick with them? Why do they deserve your money? Bank with a bank like Triodos that is actually investing in social environmental return. Switch your electricity account from the big nasties and get electricity out of there with good energy if you're in the UK because they're 100% renewable energy and largely owned by their customers. Like Celebrate the real tedium of moving your money and moving what you're buying to something that is really worth it. That was absolutely spellbinding. Thank you. From the from the global to the minutiae of what we individually can do to help. Kate Rayworth, thank you so much. So that was us uh, earlier talking to the phenomenal Kate Rayworth. We've had a bit of time to reflect now on that chat. Mark and Ed, how has that left you feeling? I think there's a few things that I really took away from what Kate was saying. I mean, firstly, there's that tendency to accumulate, you know, this sort of growth mindset, this sort of the complete madness of, uh, you know, phenomenal, eternal and infinite growth. And it really does make me go back to, you know, well, what are we trying to grow? And then the second thing is like, the power of pictures. There's something totally transformative about the mental image of the donut model you know, and the way that it helps you think about the complexity of the world, you know, and the way that some of our models are just completely inadequate. So instead of playing three-dimensional space chess, you know, we're essentially still doing noughts and crosses in terms of our economic models of the way the world really works. And I love the, the way that Kate mentioned that that also goes back to 
to ancient symbolism. And actually, there's a lot in terms of the the kind of the classic symbols uh, from ancient civilizations, which also talk about this inclusivity and this roundness and circularity uh, and connectivity. And then the fact that there's, you know, there are no externalities, you know, there are only side effects. And the trouble is we've just, we, we've been ignoring the chronic side effects, which have been creeping up on us for a very long time now. I mean, Mark often quotes um, the Johan Rockstrom. He said, you know, the environment is starting to send back invoices to the economy. Um, and then lastly, I just think Kate's kind of challenge to be more playful, this adventurousness, you know, to be a bit more silly, which obviously will um, chime with us. Uh, and this idea of sort of doing naughty things on the side, which which helped to, to undermine and, and change and transform the status quo. Mark? No, I, I, I agree with a lot of what Ed says. And, and one of the problems that we, we face a lot on our work is people will reach for simplicity over nuance all the time. You know, so And GDP and supply and demand are very simple ways of thinking about something that's actually very nuanced and complicated. And what's great about Kate's work is it's able to help us talk about all those nuances and interdependencies in a way that's accessible. And I love that that metaphor she uses of it. It's not, you know, it's not really about growth, but about the heartbeat of the world and the economy together, you know, and a heartbeat is life. And as we've talked about, you know, obsessive growth is, is death. So it's it's a really lovely way of bringing a, a complex argument into a simple space where you can actually talk about it. And, you know, the thing she said about um, these ideas being like graffiti on the mind that we just don't question, that really struck with me, uh, struck me as, a, as kind of a really interesting way of thinking about all sorts of things. There's graffiti on our minds all the time about how we think about healthcare, how we think about education, how we think about governance. Um, and it's just, you know, just listening to you, you suddenly struck with that, like, how, how could you separate the economics mm. of the world from from the planet that it's operating on? And yet we have, and it seems so normal as if environmental concerns mm. or, you know, these, they've they've named them and said, oh, you know, this happens separately to the, to the natural world. And it's like, well, that that's ridiculous. You know, again, it's still shocking, even though we know this all the time, to think that that's the frame in which we operate and, and rarely are allowed to question not so great about her. As I say, she's just going in there, she's questioning it, and people are going... Oh, yeah. I think that's the thing I, I'll take from that. And I asked her right at the beginning, and I, I remember feeling sort of stupid at the time, but it had never occurred to me that you would have economists and Extinction Rebellion working together because it had never occurred to me that people whose sphere is the economy would you know, have it built into their job. Well, of course, if we don't look after the planet we live on, everything is an irrelevance. So if the economy does not work to further the health of the planet, everybody's job is an irrelevance. And I think that's true of so many professions that we just don't see. We see certain people as doing certain things that are for profit and valuable jobs. And we don't see every single individual on this planet, regardless of their background and their profession, as fighting tooth and nail to protect the planet we live on, which should be at the heart of everything. Yeah, one of the things I often say in, uh, when I'm giving a lecture or a talk is that you know, um, any investment of time or, or money that doesn't take into account human health and the health of the planet isn't an investment. It's a cost. It's a cost on the future that you're going to have to pay because either your pension will collapse or you might end up sacrificing your life depending on where you live. So, so this idea that we're investing you know, in businesses and if those businesses aren't taking into account this wider picture, then that's not an investment. Mm. It's, as Johan Rockstrom says, as Ed says, I like to call him, you know, it's just an invoice that will come back that we'll have to pay later. And the sooner we take this stuff into account, the less of a headache we're going to have down the line. You know, if it, I'll tell you what else that podcast taught me, and it's the importance of the three of us having an intellectual and joyful person 
to educate us on certain topics. And so uh, with that in mind, we have next week, we will be discussing the future of sex. Uh, and we will be joined by the fantastic Cindy Gallup. Uh, if you don't yet know Cindy Gallup, this is your uh, seven-day warning to um, read around, uh, look into her website, makelovenotporn.com, which is precisely about the, the sex industry uh, as it is at the moment and how she's trying to take it on uh, and make it more relatable to sex as it is in the real world. Uh, and we'll also be joined just for plain old shits and giggles and to make me feel uncomfortable uh, at the request of Mark and Ed by my wife, Lucy Beaumont, who uh, will join us to share some of the details of, of our sex life. Um, so join us next week. We end, as we always do, with uh, Pointless Futures, which is where uh, we invite you, our listeners, if you've if you've seen basically the alternative to this podcast, we, we'll spend an hour chatting about the way we hope the world could go and suggestions for things we could do to make a better future for us all. There are a number of people working counter to that. And uh, if you've seen any, then please get in touch. And we have this week uh, Helen Taller, to thank who uh, sent us during during our gap a frankly astounding uh, pointless future from Birmingham. Yes, so this is that Birmingham drug dealers uh, are wanting to reduce single-use plastic <laughs> and are now offering plastic pods for customers to return and refill. Uh, and one of the, 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 I think it was the Birmingham Evening Post, interviewed uh, one of the customers and he said, uh, I was given a gram of cocaine in a plastic pod thing and my dealer said, uh, they were not serving in plastic Ziploc bags or wraps anymore. Um, he said I could bring it back if I wanted to and refill it, and that would be better for the environment. <laughs> I thought he was joking, but he was serious, and he reckoned that they use far too many plastic baggies, and uh, and this would be much more popular with the, the sort of the middle class cocaine using eco friendly customer. Uh, I think w- what we have to point out here to that eco friendly middle class cocaine customers it's it's the fucking deforestation of uh, the amazon for cocaine farming that's probably the fucking problem rather than a reusable plastic container for your drug habit i think these birmingham drug dealers have just invented unvirtuous virtue signaling <laughs> i wonder if there was if it is a market i guess for fair trade narcotics I wonder if that's a thing that could happen. Definitely, there is definitely people have been debating that for a very long time. So yes, it would it would be the ultimate way. I mean, I think even if you go to if you look at um, some senior Colombian politicians, they are uh, actually advocates for that. And if you read J- Chasing the Scream by uh, Johan Hari, uh, he makes a very good case for that decriminalization of narcotics, but also the the fair trade sourcing, which doesn't have the terrible on-the-ground effect. Mm. Well, I, I smell a potential future podcast on the future of drugs. We three, I think, are all alike in that our drug of choice has been high on our list of uh, topics for this podcast. So uh, in the next few weeks, you will hear a show on the future of uh, pubs and drinking very uh, relevant i think at the current time but as i said next week we'll be joined by uh, lucy bomb and cindy gallup for our sex episode if you have uh, any thoughts on uh, today's show with the fantastic kate rayworth or indeed anything you've heard at any point uh, or if you want to send in a suggestion for pointless future then you can do so via the following channels you can reach us by email at hello at john and the future that's hello at john, J-O-N, and the future noughts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. 
And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. And that concludes this week. Uh, Mark and Ed, it's wonderful to be back in your company, and I hope you have a wonderful week. And uh, I'll see you for some uh, sexual intercourse next week. Well, I'd like to say I'm looking forward to that, but let's see how it plays out, shall we? It'll probably be a shorter podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.